0: Habakkuk 1. Let's let's turn to uh, Habakkuk 1, verses 1 through 11 and read that together. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. This is a frank conversation that Habakkuk is having with the Lord. It's this back and forth with the prophet and there are a number of themes in this book. There's a very specific theme happening, particularly in my passage, um, which is known as theodicy. It's a a word that means uh, the problem of evil or the relationship that God has to evil. How can a good God allow bad things to happen? What is God's relationship to evil? What is his relationship to suffering? Why does he allow suffering? Just how sovereign is God? How in control is he? You know, Emily and I, we have four children. Uh, They all grasp scripture and, and spirituality in different ways. Uh, One of them uh, loves narrative. They love the narrative stories and they they never really question God. They don't question, they they just trust that the story they are reading is truth. And I have another child. He's gonna be a philosophy professor. He asks a lot of questions and they're almost always about this question. Why does a good God allow bad things to happen? Sometimes he'll say, Why did God allow that earthquake to kill all those people in Turkey and Syria? Why did he allow that Christian in the Middle East to suffer persecution at the hands of his family? We were on our way to a tennis, a a, a soccer tournament, and he just started peppering me with questions about World, like, a week, what's to stop us from getting into World War III? And I, at the end of this, we finally got to the soccer match, and he was like, okay, I'm out of here. And I'm like in a rabbit hole of fear and doubt that maybe we don't have the capabilities we thought we did as the U.S. Army. But he's great. I love it when he asks me questions. I love it when he asks me hard questions. It reassures me that, that Shep is alive, <laughs> And that Shep's mind is active and that the Lord is working in Shep's heart. And probably more importantly, it makes me realize that Shep trusts me for the answer that I'm going to give. And for me, it's important that I search the scriptures and that I understand. I give him a good scriptural answer. And so a lot of times I tell him, I'll say, Shep, sometimes the Bible's really clear and sometimes it's quiet. We don't know. Who put the serpent in the garden? Okay, I don't know. And sometimes I don't know is the best answer you can give. It's it's a good answer. I also emphasize the fall. I emphasize what happened in Genesis 3, that when Adam and Eve sinned, we are dealing with the effects of that even now. It separated us from God. It created sin and death. It brought sin and death into our world. But I also reassure, reassure Shep of Romans eight twenty eight, that God is working out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I, re- I reassure him that God is sovereign. And even if we lose World War III, we will trust that God has a plan for us. See, all of this doesn't necessarily alleviate pain and the, the, the suffering, the pain that comes from suffering. But we know as believers that suffering is not wasted. It's, it, there's a purpose to it. It's not pointless. And I, wanna, I do want to say here, um, you know, not all suffering is like the discipline of God that we're, we're seeing in this text, right? Some suffering is because of sin. And the Israelites in the Southern Kingdom in this time period are dealing with the effects of their sin, their unrighteousness, and their injustice. And God is going to punish them if they don't turn. But some suffering is because of righteousness, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Sometimes there's just general suffering, right? Because of the fall, we're all going to die. We're going to lose our parents. We're going to lose loved ones. We're going to suffer through that. There is sin. We're going to suffer through sin. There's just what I would call general suffering. But the suffering in this text is because of sin. You know, I I run an organization called Help the Persecuted. We work primarily Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia. So from Morocco all the way to Pakistan, we've got about 40 people, and they're handling cases of persecution, anything from what we call civic death, which is when someone loses their job, they lose their inheritance, or their family kicks them out of their home, all the way to death, and the family that has to deal with the death of a loved one because of their faith in Christ or because of their conversion and I often get this question, how do you deal with this suffering? I mean, you're seeing all this pain all the time. You must be in a counselor's office all the time. And I say, no, I, there are heavy moments. There are moments when we weep over a story. We weep over a case. It is heavy, but God in his graciousness, he gives us this glimpse into their suffering and his plan, his plan of salvation, Sometimes his plan to prune his church, to spread his name, to draw the persecuted closer to the Lord in ways that I, I just don't think us in Atlanta that we, that we know and understand it. We're, we're dealing with a case right now with a woman who these radical Islamists wanted to marry her eight-year-old, marry the eight-year-old daughter. And the family said no and they they murdered their son. They killed their son, and they fled Iraq. They fled to Jordan, and our Jordan team met with them, and, and they, they were Muslim background people, and they actually came to faith in Christ. And You know what she says? She says, the only peace that I have in life today, the only peace that I have is when I'm in the church and I'm with the body of Christ. The only thing that gives me peace is that. And I, So I don't want to trivialize suffering. I don't want to minimize suffering in this passage. But this text is going to challenge us. The whole book is going to challenge us So, because we are guilty of making a God in our own image, one that we can manipulate, one that, that swings from wish-granter all the way to distant and aloof. We have to recognize the age that we're living in, the, the idea of sin and rebellion and God's discipline, the holiness of God, the justice of God, the devastation that sin can cause. You see, the broader church doesn't, for the most part, I think in this season, want to engage with that. Not so for you biblical scholars here at Christ's Covenant. But it's good to be reminded of the sovereignty of God. And I, I in this, and um, his sovereignty over all things, even evil and wickedness. And I broke down the passage into three sections. Uh, one is, is God's prophet, verses one through four. Two, God's work, verse five. And then God's tools, verses six through 11. But before I get to the prophet Habakkuk, I do want to, I want to talk a little bit about Israel and prophets in general. There is this beautiful passage in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter seven, and I want to read it to you. I think every Christian should be familiar with this because I think sometimes we get confronted with this idea that people think, "Well, the God of the Old Testament is really angry; the God of the New Testament is happy." And I want to say that's not the case. Like. This passage is so beautiful. It's about God's love for his people. And it begins in verse 6 of chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your, uh, holy, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord has set his love for on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, King of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord, your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love With those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, the whole there's five times that he says the word love. God loves his people. So if you're tempted during this series, if you're tempted at any point during my message or Billy's or John's or Jason's, and you sort of think God just sounds really heavy-handed here, he really sounds capricious. No, the Israelites knew what they knew when at the, at the time of the contract, they knew what they were getting themselves into. They had a loving God who expected great things of them. They expected obedience of them. Now, one of the ways that he shows his love is that he speaks to his people. And in the time, uh, in the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets. He communicates to his people. In Deuteronomy 13 and 18, he, he, we will learn how uh, god speaks through prophets he he and a prophet you know must be first of all an israelite must speak in god's name must perform signs must have supernatural knowledge of the future and that those events ultimately take place they were in a sense the mouthpiece of god they called people to repentance to believe and return to the loving god described in deuteronomy 7 I'm using the past tense, as I said, because we don't, list, we don't have prophets in our day, right? In the book of Hebrews, it says um, in chapter one, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And so it's against this backdrop that Habakkuk comes on the scene. It's around 600 BC, and the, the two kingdoms in Israel have split. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and Habakkuk is in the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom has already been taken captive by the Assyrians. We don't know much about Habakkuk. It's kinda, it kind of just jumps straight into Here I am, and here's my problem. You know, at least Isaiah, we learn, like, who his father is. We learn the time period and what they're struggling with. And Ezekiel, we know he's the son of Buzi, and and we're given a lot of details about what's happening historically. But Habakkuk simply just starts Habakkuk the prophet. You know, we have to learn through other biblical texts what's happening. And one of the things we learn is that there was a leader named King Jehoiakim. And Israel had a lot of kings. They had, they had good kings, and they had some real stinkers. And this guy was the latter. He was bad. Uh, he was the only Israelite king to have killed a prophet. Uriah was the prophet. Uriah came and said, you all need to repent. You are hurting each other. You are stealing from each other. You are lying. There is violence. And he, the king's response is to kill the prophet. And so when Habakkuk cries out, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence. He's crying out to him because he's thinking he could be next. He's fearing for his life. This is why he's desperate. The the honesty and urgency in Habakkuk's words, they, they speak to a depth of relationship with God, a depth of trust in God. He doesn't waste time with pleasantries. He doesn't take time to give an introduction. He reaches up to God with his doubt, his questions, and his plea for help immediately. And this mirrors the psalmist in some ways. The psalms are are full of questions. (laughs) Psalm 42, why do you hide yourself from me, Lord? Why have you forgotten me? God's okay with questions. In fact, I think God likes questions. That John, the revelator, in the book of Revelation, he records this this holy vision of heaven, and there are these martyrs in heaven who have been slain for their faith in Jesus, and he says, it says, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood of those who dwell on the earth? Questions speak to intimacy and trust, and as I said, I, I love it when my kids ask me questions. Because it means they trust me for the answer. Our prayer to God should not just come from a place of knowledge about God, but intimacy with God. And often that only comes when we're desperate for his intervention and desperation leads to ask questions and inquire. And so Habakkuk goes further and he says, why do you make me see iniquity? And the NIV says injustice. Why do you make me see injustice? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice is perverted. Injustice, wrong, violence. Habakkuk is saying that this contagion has spread from the king to everyone. Everyone is doing whatever they want and whatever they think is right in their own eyes. And it's paralyzed justice, but Habakkuk He's wanting God to intervene, but the response is not going to be what Habakkuk thinks. God's intervention will not be what Habakkuk is thinking. And that's number two. So God's work in verse five, you know, um, over the years, the last 20 years, I've been involved in in Christian media and Christian publishing. And one of the like great mysteries for me is, is these like scenic shots, like, they're, they're, they're like the sun or they're scenic shot, and then they have scripture over them. Here's one right here. And, the, and it particularly vexes me when I see like a verse is taken out of context, like this one. You know, how, what do you do with this? It's like a sun and clouds, and it looks so hopeful, but there's gonna be 70 years of exile. You're gonna be in chains. <laughs> the next one, you can show the next one. You know, I mean, now this one actually kind of makes sense because it's like, you might wanna have a seat for this. Violent marauders are coming and they're going to take you captive for 70 years. This next one might be the most accurate because there are like those little dots. Those, those could be the, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians coming to take Israel captive, right? You're going to lose everything. The Lord answers Habakkuk and he's, he's setting up a description of something, if we're honest, it's terrifying. It's not going to be a time of prosperity or victory. It's not sunsets and clouds. It's loss. It's shackles. It's chains. The answer to Habakkuk's prayer is not going to be what he expects, and the Lord is prepping him. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. The King James Version says, working a work. That's, the, that's probably the most accurate translation. The work that is happening is not random. It is not happening apart from God's direct intervention. The work is a work of punishment, discipline. But if they turn, if they repent, it'd be a work of sanctification and redemption the only other time that this phrase is used is in Isaiah 28. And the prophet records it and he uses the phrase strange work. This is a strange work. In other words, this, is so, this will so confound the people. It will be so unbelievable. It's a hard word. God is going to discipline his beloved, his beloved Israel using an even more unrighteous nation. Paul, the apostle Paul in Acts 13 He quotes this verse. He's warning the Jews of that time not to reject Jesus as their Messiah. And he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then Paul quotes this verse, Habakkuk 1.5. This is a warning to those Jews who had yet to take Christ as their Messiah. And you know what the next verse says? It says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them at the next Sabbath, so that their other friends could hear the truth, their other Jewish friends could hear the truth. These Jews would have known right away what Paul was saying. They would have heard from their parents, who heard from their parents, who heard from their parents, just how awful the Babylonian captivity was. They would have have known how terrible the plight of the Jews during that captivity. The work is not one of prosperity. This unique work is a work of discipline. The Lord is warning the people of Israel through the prophet Habakkuk. And Paul is warning his hearers, warning the Jews of his day. And the same warning exists to us. Do not persist in your willful disobedience to the Lord, or the Lord will work on you. Number three, God's tools for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. There is no darkness in God. There is only light. And yet, God, in his control, in his sovereignty, has all things at his disposal, even the Chaldeans, even the Assyrians. Well, doesn't this make God guilty of sin? If, if, he's, work, if he's working with these evil people, does that make him evil? No, John Calvin, I love the way he says this. He says, Thus we see that the worst of men are in God's hands, as Satan is, who is their head. And yet that God is not implicated in their wickedness, as some insane men maintain. For they say that if God governs the world by his providence, he becomes thus the author of sin, and men's sins are to be ascribed to him. But Scripture teaches us far otherwise. And he's right. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Colossians 1, 16 through 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Remember the story of Joseph in Genesis his dad had given him a blessing, and he, he gave him this really nice coat. You may remember the musical, Joseph Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? No, oh, he, he gave him this blessing, and the brothers became jealous, and the brothers took the coat, and they, they threw him in a pit, and he was sold to slavery. And then he was accused of a crime that he didn't commit. He was put in jail. And through circuitous events, Ultimately, he found his way to Pharaoh's court, and he became the chief of staff for Pharaoh. And as chief of staff, he ends up saving the lives of his very family in Egypt from famine. And this is what Joseph says to his brothers. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The Lord can redeem anything The Lord is sovereign. In fact, Isaiah 10, the Lord refers to the Assyrian people, who are another pagan group, as a rod of judgment against Israel for their wickedness. God is going to use the Chaldeans in a disciplinary manner towards his people if they don't repent. You know, um, spanking is kind of like a controversial topic, right? Some parents think they should spank their kids, and some kids, some parents don't, and I, I think that you don't, you know, we can maybe disagree. I know my European friends think it's kind of, bar- my, even my Christian European friends kind of think it's barbaric and backwards, but, you know, Emily and I um, grew up in a house where my parents weren't afraid to, to use a wooden spoon or a belt. I don't go about my day desiring to spank my kids. I love my children. And because I love them and my desire to be in an uninterrupted fellowship with them, anything that interrupts that fellowship has to be addressed. I hate disciplining my kids, it stinks. But I can't let them get away with a WWF leg drop on one's sister's head on the concrete. Or holding one's brother underwater at the pool. You know, sometimes I tell them, you know, know, I warn them, you know, don't do this, don't do this. I'm, I'm warning you, if you do this, this will happen. Sometimes I've already warned them and I'm swift in my discipline. This is what's happening. God is using terrifying language in these verses to convince his people to course correct. He is desiring to communicate how severe the Chaldean attack will be to drive his people away from their pursuit of unrighteousness and unrighteous behavior and injustice and back to a loving God. Um, back in 2014, uh, ISIS, the Islamic State, they had already taken over large swaths of Syria, and they had moved into northern Iraq, where we have a center in the part of uh, in a Christian village in northern Iraq. And when ISIS came in, they were they were a terrifying bunch of people. They actually weren't that big, they weren't that powerful, but they were very violent, and they were very good at using media to communicate their violence. And so when they got to these Christian villages of Karakosh and Bartella and the Christian parts of Mosul. ISIS put leaflets on all the Christian homes. And, and this, is, this is one of the leaflets here. One of my colleagues sent us, sent us this back in 14 that they had put on his door. You know, it, it goes through this whole thing. You know, we are the caliphate and we're, you know, Allah has given us the authority to do all this. But then they gave them like three options. You can see one, two, and three right there. One was convert to Islam. Two was, you can remain a Christian in your village, but you have to pay the tax. You have to pay the penalty, which is called the Jezreel. And it was a heavy, heavy, heavy penalty. The third option was execution by the sword. So you can see your, your options become very limited. Most Christians took option four, which was to leave in the cover of night. And so they packed up their cars and they took whatever belongings they could get into their car and fit into their car, and they drove to Erbil, and they lived in tent villages, and some of them lived in tent villages for a decade. <laughs> Still there today. I met this, this man who fled uh, Karakosh. He was, uh, he was the liquor store owner <laughs> in Karakosh. He was born into a Catholic family. His understanding of God was really through ritual and Christmas and Easter, but he had no relationship with God and he was just, had no faith, no belief in God. When he fled, he fled to Erbil and ultimately he fled to Amman, Jordan. And when he got to Amman, Jordan, there was a church full of Iraqi Christians worshiping and praising God. And he hears the gospel with clarity. He hears that Christ died for him, that he can have Eternal life with God. He doesn't have to live this way anymore, and he's and he's he's overcome. I think I have a picture of their family. He's overcome with emotion, Yanni, and he and he's, and he comes to the Lord in this radical, radical way. And he looks me in the eye, and i Jordan, and he says, "I thank God for ISIS." You know, I thought there was like a translation problem. I was like, "What? Well, come again?" That's the, that can't. He can't have said that in, in no way. He said, "I thank God." For ISIS, I was shocked. He began to tell me that if it hadn't been for ISIS, I wouldn't have left for Erbil. And if I hadn't left for Erbil, I wouldn't have had to come to Amman. And if I didn't come to Amman, I wouldn't have heard the gospel. I'd be dead in my sin. I'd be getting people drunk again. You know what he did? After they destroyed all of his liquor, after they destroyed his home, they turned, he turned his home into a church. So it's probably the first evangelical church in 1,400 years, in Bartella. A pastor looked at me as I was kind of like trying to deal with I've been to that church. There's a wonderful missionary from Brazil who's serving in that church, and I'm looking at this pastor, and I'm like, well, how do I reconcile this? And he says, Josh, ISIS, they're, they're like God's servants. <laughs> And Even as I say that, it sounds crazy. He said, do you know how many Muslims have come to faith in Christ after what ISIS did? Not just Yanni. Even members of ISIS have come to faith in Christ. A man who works for me right now in Beirut, Lebanon, was a prince of ISIS. Other members of ISIS had sworn allegiance to him, that they would die for him. One day, he was a a judge. Before he became a recruiter for a a prince of ISIS, he was a he was a judge in Syria, an ISIS judge, and it was constant pronouncement of execution after execution after execution. And he executed. There was one guy that he executed that he knew he was innocent. He knew this was a good man, and that in his nightmares he was seeing that man's head every night, and he was tormented. So he comes to Beirut, Lebanon, and somebody in Beirut tells him about one of my staff members. And my staff member starts to share the gospel with him. And the man goes away. And when he goes away, he has a dream in the middle of the night. And it's a dream where a man shows up in white, and he's got a white envelope in his hand, and the white envelope is filled with blood. (laughs) And Muhammad leans over to the envelope of blood, and he smells it, and it smells like Incense, it smells beautiful. And he wakes up. So he comes back to uh, Amel, who works for me, goes back to Amel. And in his dream, he thinks that the blood is either going to be his blood that's going to be spilled as a martyr for killing Amel, because he's thinking he needs to kill this Christian now, or it's going to be Amel's blood who he's going to spill. And Amel says, No, no, no. He says, That dream you saw was the blood of Jesus. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And that man gave his life to the Lord. He serves the church today. Small groups, he leads worship. A total transformation. The sovereign God who allowed ISIS to do all these things. The same sovereign God who reached down in this man's dream. God... In his sovereignty and his gracious work was able to use ISIS as a tool to bring redemption to many. I know that sounds crazy. Don't fear man. Don't fear man. Don't fear Marxists and don't fear whatever that the latest Twitter boogeyman is. No, fear God. Revere God. Not fear him in terror, but revere him. He is sovereign. Don't fear the one who can kill your body, but, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. But you know, there's another instrument in God's toolbox. It's his most effective tool. He didn't invent it per se, the Romans did. It was an instrument of torture, it was, it was designed to inflict maximum pain. In fact, the Jews in Deuteronomy were told that cursed is the man who hangs on this thing. The cross was reserved for criminals. You and I deserve that instrument used on us. The wages of sin is death, Romans says. But God, in his sovereign and gracious work, redeemed that instrument, as it says in Galatians 3. He redeemed that tool to be a tool for our salvation. The tool that was meant as a curse was used not on the wicked, not on the criminal, but on God's only son. Christ redeemed that tool by hanging on it for me and you for anyone who would come and repent and believe. That's good news. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that this is a hard word, and yet it is a word of redemption and of of healing. I think of of even 500 years later that you started the Chaldean Church through, through Thomas, the disciple And in your sovereignty, you expanded your kingdom into a part of the world that that had rejected you. And so, Lord, help us to see that you are sovereign over history, you are sovereign over nations, and you are sovereign even over our lives, our existence. Help us to lean into that and, and not be afraid to ask questions, not to be afraid to inquire. Draw us closer to you in intimacy. May we not grow cold. We pray all this in Jesus' name.